1 to 12. Two Thessalonians two chapters sorry, two Thessalonians two one to twelve. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in, cordon, will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs of wonder that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. I ask Andrew if he'd like to come and speak to us now. Say a short prayer for you before you start. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word that you've put on Andrew's heart. We pray that as he brings it to us, you'll speak to each and every one of us this morning. Amen. remarkable. So as Keith has uh, prepared us and led us well this morning to anticipate now our studies focusing on those immediate events surrounding the moment of the return of the Lord. I need to tell you that there are many, many more scriptures, teachings and prophecies in the word of God concerning this event than there was about Jesus' first advent. So that uh, the, the volume of material, if you were to go all the way through it, we'd be here 
probably until he comes. So what I have decided to do for us this morning is to provide an overview. It's an introduction, almost, a summary of those key events. And one of the ways in which I will do this is by making reference to Scripture passages, but not reading them all. If I were to read all the passages I'm going to refer to, then we really would miss lunch. But it occurred to me, and uh, this is an aside in a way, in a way, what I should have done is print you out a copy of my notes. Now, I'm very happy to do that. So if next week uh, I bring a copy of these notes, first of all, promise me you won't use that as an excuse to fall asleep this morning. But also, if you could just, how many would be interested in just having a copy of the notes? That's fine. You don't feel near guilty if you don't have your hand. Okay, fine. Well, I was pleased to see the number of hands. You didn't even know what I'm going to charge you yet. <laughs> so then, there are three things I, I want to reflect on this morning. The first is the sign of lawlessness. Paul's primary purpose is reassurance. Paul's saying to the people in Thessalonica, it hasn't happened yet. He's already told them in verse 5, but sadly we don't know what he said. That would have been a wonderful thing to listen into, wouldn't it? But he, he reminds them that there are some things to look out for. And the first of these is the rebellion in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion happens, occurs. Now, the basic view of the Bible is this, that God is the source of all authority. He is the supremo, king of kings and lord of lords. And if anybody falls away from God, in the broadest sense, that is rebellion. Because individuals are taking the right to determine their own lives and way rather than God, and so are seen as rebelling against God. And what Bishop Neal, who I quoted last week, says about this is this, that Towards the end, there will be a widespread and violent defiance of the authority of God. In other words, God's moral authority, God's legal authority, and God's spiritual authority in our world will be increasingly overthrown and rebelled against. Jesus made reference to this particular period of lawlessness when he taught on the, his return in Luke 17. He mentioned that the days would be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot 
Remember that scripture? The days of Noah and the days of Lot. Two things about those particular incidents. The first is that when judgment finally came on Sodom and the world, it happened suddenly. So it will be like that. And as we saw last week, suddenly, but not for Noah and Lot. They knew roughly what was going to be happening. But the other thing that the days of uh, Noah and Lot indicate are a number of corruptions that enter into society and the world. A rejection of God's standard. A gradual undermining of all authority. An erosion of family life. Blatant sexual perversion. A prevalence of materialism and hedonism. Now, any one of those subjects could be uh, expounded upon and dealt with. Uh, obviously, I'm just giving you some headlines that that is the kind of society that Jesus was referring to, the days of Noah and Lot. Now, those kinds of things are always present. But what Paul is saying is that they will get worse and worse until the world and its order is on the verge of collapse. And as the world order begins to collapse and break down, so a man of lawlessness will emerge with a view to taking over. But before he does that, Paul makes clear in this passage that something is holding him back. That final breakthrough of evil is being restrained. Let's look at verse 6. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. You'll be pleased to know that St. Augustine said of those two verses, I frankly confess I do not know what he means. And it has been much debated ever since. There are two main ideas as to what is holding back this final breakthrough of evil and lawlessness. One is the Holy Spirit and the church. In other words, the presence of God among his people. And the other is the influence and role of the state. Those are things that could be seen as holding back the progressive deterioration of our society into evil. Now, I freely told you at the very beginning, if I had a personal opinion, I'd tell you. All right? I think it's the state. And in this, I follow the teaching of John Stott. So blame him if you disagree. Of course, he's not here any longer to disagree with, but... You see, God's instrument for law and order in society is the state. Paul in Romans 13 makes that abundantly clear, where 
The secular authorities are identified as established by God. But rebels and rebelling, rebelling are called out for lawlessness. Rulers, police, restraining forces for law and order, are identified as rulers. God's servants, they're even called. And the personal pronoun he is used in Romans 13. So the instruments of the state are there to restrain and hold back evil. But Paul says in 2 Thessalonians here that that will be taken away. I think more it has to do with the idea of being swept away. In other words, the rising tide of uh, lawlessness will be such that no longer is the state and its instruments able to hold it back. There will be a breakdown of all law uh, in society. Policing, in a way, will be swept away. Now, of course, you can already see parts of our world where that is already in existence. I say thank God for our police in this country who come under a huge amount of pressure. But there are signs that even they can be corrupted and lawless. And in some parts of our world, in some of the major cities of our world, there are no policing areas. So we can see little images and pictures of these kinds of things. So we have areas where already uh, there are no-go areas for police and law and order. And we see that even in our own society. The pressures that are on teachers, rebellion in the classrooms, issues generally, it is getting worse, certainly since I was a youngster. And so uh, what Paul is referring to here is the rebellion, the final one. And that will lead, secondly then, to the man of lawlessness, which is uh, referred to by Paul in, verses, in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, there are three main chapters in the Bible dealing with this man of lawlessness. Daniel chapter 7, this chapter here in 2 Thessalonians 2, and also Revelation 13. This person is described also as Antichrist. He is also referred to symbolically in the book of Revelation as the beast. But what we are talking about here is an individual, a real human being, a powerful man who seeks to and then becomes a world dictator. And he rises to power as the offered solution to this general lawlessness and breakdown. Saying, in effect, things have got so bad, you need somebody to take charge and sort it all out and get the world back to the way in which it will be. 
And he uses that as a pretext for his own takeover and dictatorship. Now, the vital truth, again, as Paul emphasizes, and I continue to emphasize, is that we should not fear that. He is ultimately, this person, doomed to destruction. And no matter how powerful he appears, he will be ultimately destroyed. Verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed. When the Lord Jesus overth- it, it will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. But he will be a person on the world stage to be reckoned with. Verses 9 and 10 are particularly interesting. The coming of the lawlessness of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displaying all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. In other words, there will be a very strong spiritual dimension to this person who will be capable of producing what we would call signs and wonders and miracles, but satanically inspired. In other words, a man of some deeply religious content to his being, but able to produce something like that that would be very deceptive. In 1 John chapter 2, another chapter that deals a lot with Antichrist, deals a lot with the man of lawlessness, John expounds that one of the key issues for this person is that he denies the father and denies the son. In other words, he's got something about Jesus that he will not, cannot stomach and wants to pull down the knowledge of. The book of Revelation makes clear that he seeks this world domination with the aid of Satan himself and with political, spiritual, and commercial power bases. And these are pictured for us in the apocalyptic literature that there is in the book of Revelation. So you will have heard of the beast, which is a representation of political power base, of the dragon, a spiritual power base, and the great prostitute, a commercial power base. What Paul constantly emphasizes is that he is lawless himself, so his attempt to solve the problem of lawlessness only makes it worse because that is a core to his being and his deep opposition to God himself. One of the most challenging little verses among all these challenging verses in this particular passage is uh, the reference that 
uh, is made to him setting up himself in God's temple. Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself as God. Let me uh, read now, and this passage I will read, because they're the actual words of Jesus on this particular matter. Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, and then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Let no one on his roof of his house go down to take uh, anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back for his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days. And he goes on, does Jesus, to then describe all of the issues. But the point he makes is this one, the same that Paul picks up on here, that it will be revealed when this man of lawlessness stands in the temple as an act of abomination. Now, the problem is this. There is no temple. Not today, not at this moment. And where a temple would be and could only be built in Jerusalem, there are two great mosques there. So what we're looking at at some point is potentially a seismic, unbelievable moment of conflict on the Temple Mount that would enable the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. Now, there are plans for that going on in Jerusalem today. So that kind of desperate scenario of the end times is yet to happen, but it is. Incidentally, over the, over the years of history, there have been many people who have gone into the temple to uh, cause it to be not destroyed but abominated and um, violated as far as the Jews were concerned. started with Antiochus Epiphanes in 169, Pompey, great general, 63 BC, Caligula, 40 AD, Antiochus in 70. So who might such a person be, this Antichrist? Well, I think the best thing to say is we haven't a clue. And there has been endless books and speculation written over the years as to who it is, and most of them are long dead now. But there will be such a person. Paul's basic argument is this. Stand firm. Stand firm. I want to come, finally, in this overview to the tribulation of lawlessness. I read just a moment ago from Matthew 24, where Jesus expresses this intense period of conflict and the need to take very great care over it. One of the elders in the book of Revelation describes this 
final period of time as the Great Tribulation. Let me run through some of the major features that will occur in this Great Tribulation. The final, final period begins with this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, standing in the holy place, standing and appearing in a temple or similar building at the very heart of Jerusalem, which would be something that would be a great abomination to the Jewish people. Revelation 14 speaks of a worldwide trading restriction that is limited to those who have what is called in Revelation 14 the mark of the beast. It's really an exercise in control over the trading and banking systems of our world. And believers are forbidden to participate in that. Now, what is interesting in our world today is the interconnectedness of all trading, commercial, banking, financial institutions through the internet and through connections in that way. I, I, I think one of the signs would be the elimination of cash. Because if you have cash, you can trade. But at the moment, cash ceases to be a functioning, viable uh, method of trading, then you're in trouble. Because uh, then you can narrow down and make requirements of people only to trade if they have certain criteria fulfilled, one of which is called the mark of the beast. Believers are forbidden to participate in that. Jesus in Matthew 14 describes this period also as a time of great persecution against believers. And it could well be that the, that the persecution is aggravated by the fact that believers will not take the mark of the beast. So that if you stand outside of any new system, you will inevitably be marked out and become obvious and clear. So persecution will begin to emerge against those who don't go along with the rest of the crowd as far as these trading systems are concerned. That leads us uh, to say that it will also be a time of great apostasy. That uh, I've already referred to last week, and J Jesus mentions it in this very specific context. If you have a trading system that is unable to be entered into by true believers, and they opt not to participate in it, and those who uh, do not take the mark of the beast are earmarked for persecution, there will always be people who are not prepared to take that stand. And they will fall away. They would rather have 
the material comforts and ease of a life that is dominated by an a even an alien system than go through the hardships and the difficulties of not. You follow me? Yes? So that there will be those who then fall away. However, there's a lot in the scriptures to suggest that this is also a time of revival among Christians and a major turning to Jesus by the Jewish people. Prophecies of Joel, Zechariah 12 and 13, which are chapters which have never been fulfilled even to these days. So in the midst of all of this conflict, persecution falling away, there is yet going to be, by the Holy Spirit, an amazing opportunity for the gospel. I think it will be a time, uh, su summed up in Dickens' words, it will be the worst of times and the best of times. He wasn't referring to the Great Tribulation, by the way, in that book. And then it will be a time of major warfare in the Middle East. Major warfare in the Middle East. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and Zechariah 12 are very specific about the manner this warfare is going to be engaged in. It is called uh, uh, the advance by the uh, armies and forces of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you were to read those chapters, and they're a study all in and themselves, the scenario is remarkably similar to that which is today happening between Russia and Ukraine. That there are advancing forces I mean, not the location, obviously. The location will be in Israel. But there would be advancing forces that would seek to surround and encapsulate the nation of Israel and threaten and finally attack. And that will culminate in a great battle called the Battle of Armageddon, which is on the plains of Megiddo in Galilee in the north of Israel. So it's at that point that when those battles finally reach a pitch in Israel and the rest of society is, as I have broadly pictured, at that moment in the midst when it looks as if Israel and its forces and coalition forces with Israel are about to be destroyed, that Jesus will come. Now, the question is this, or a couple of questions. I told you we weren't getting away lightly. Two questions, really. How long does this period of great tribulation last? And secondly, exactly when in that period will Jesus return? First one is a simple question. Pretty well everybody agrees that it will be, it will last two periods of three and a half years, a total of seven years. The uh, first three and a half years may well be the period during which the man of lawlessness grows in power until he finally reaches the final position and the last three years, the intensity of 
the Great Tribulation. And then, when in that period will Jesus return? Incidentally, the phrase rapture, the rapture, refers to all of the different points of view because it simply means when Jesus returns, the church and the believers will go up to meet the Lord in the air, and that's called the rapture. Okay? The first view, just let me mention, is post-tribulation. That is the traditional view that the church has had from the time of Jesus up until the 1830s. That is that we will go, believers will go all the way through the tribulation, first three years, three and a half, second three and a half. At the end, we get the great battle and believers will be there. Jesus will come and we will be raptured and go to be with him in glory. That's the traditional view. But there is a, a view abroad that is called pre-tribulation, and this has been an understanding and view in which, since 1830, a view was propounded that the church and the believers would not go through the tribulation, that they would be raptured and taken to be with the Lord before all of the worst stuff happens. This is almost, um, I would tell you, the, the predominant view in evangelical circles in America today. This view has a history, of course, and it started in the 18, early 1830s associated with a man called J.N. Darby, who was the founder of the Brethren Movement. And it is a study in itself, um, which I don't have time to go into. But if you ever wanted a summary, incidentally, of that, David Forson's excellent book, When Jesus Returns, is a great, I think, view into that. Now, I told you it, I would expound some different views. There's also a mid-tribulation thinking, which says that you go through the first three and a half years, then Jesus will rapture the saints secretly, and then you go through the second three and a half years. In real terms, it doesn't make a great deal of difference to the pre-trib view. My personal view, I told you I'd tell you what I thought, I'll tell you what I think. I agree uh, with Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, con who concerning the pre-tribulation point of view said this, you would never find this in scripture unless you had the idea first. I think the danger, the great danger of a pre-tribulation view and a mid-tribulation view is it weakens resolve and it weakens preparation for the very worst of times. And, perhaps even more serious than that, it would leave the world without testimony, without witness. Corrie Ten Boom wrote this, if anyone tells you that you will not experience the worst of times, do not believe them. We are in training 
or the tribulation. P.S. If we leave this earth before then, I'll be the first up. But I think it's dangerous to assume we will be. And we best train as soldiers of Christ for the works so that we can come through whatever happens. Final, final word. You have been so patient this morning. Thank you very much. Remember, God's in charge. God's in charge. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, the Lamb takes a scroll. It's sealed. And on that scroll is written the ends of the ages history. And he holds it in his hand and he breaks the seal. He is in control. He's in charge of the events. He's in charge of the timetable. He holds the scroll in his hands. Do I hear a Baptist? Amen. Chapters uh, 7 and 14 in the book of Revelation show God sealing or marking his saints. There is for the believers during these days a unique sense of ownership and protection. Revelation 11 speaks about two supernatural witnesses that will appear in Jerusalem. Revelation 7 shows God graciously receiving the martyrs home, and there will be many. The purpose of both Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching, all the apostolic teaching, is to do with fear not, be strong, be strong, stand firm. But even though our world deteriorates into more and more lawlessness, and the forces Corruption, the power of evil, bring forth people who we would recognize as anti-Christ. That's not the end of the story. We know the end of the story. As I said at the very beginning, Jesus wins. But these are the things we need to be aware of, as Paul taught them, so that they were not caught by surprise and prepared. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today who are suffering persecution from evil and lawless people. Many of our brothers and sisters are already dying for the faith and receiving a martyr's welcome in glory. Lord, help us to follow their example and be ready and strong no matter what happens. May we walk through this Christian life, Lord, with resolution, 
with firmness of faith, absolute confidence that our God is in control. And may we be at peace. Give us great wisdom, Lord, we pray, so that as we face some of the practical implications of the deterioration of standards in society, we may make wise choices, godly decisions, and be in tune with the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew, no. I, was, I didn't think we could do this series without singing this good old hymn. Um, some of you may not know it. I don't think the girls knew the song, so, so they learned very quickly. Um, you just need to take deep breaths, and we're going to sing When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. And hopefully, hopefully you can say, I'll be there. Trumpets on the launch of sand and time shall be no more. 